Welcome to the Pinky Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lansocht, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Philip Cresswell, an incoming assistant professor in sociology, a recovering PhD student and writer at large. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates as well as those who work closely with them. I hope you stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. This is episode 114, and today we'll be talking about presenting at conferences. Uh, we thought this would be a good time to talk about conferences, as springtime is when we start to get ready to travel to our conferences again and take out the, the slippers for the beach and the suits for the conference. So what not better than to dedicate an episode to conferences? I think it's also sort of when you start actually writing your conference paper in some cases. Good point. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the I think that the the place to start with this, uh, and I think it has come more into focus in a post-COVID world, is the question of what the heck is the point of a scientific conference? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious as to what you think the point of a scientific conference is. It's a good question. And in my field, a lot of conferences are as well tied together with work in technical committees. So for many of the conferences that I go to or that I attend, it is related to not just the sessions at the conference and seeing the presentations and uh, meeting people, but also having the meetings within the working groups that we have on the documents that we're trying to push forward. Typically, it's documents that we write with recommendations. This is for the actual organizations that you're involved in, right? That's correct, yes. Civil engineers of... Yeah, there's, for example, the American Concrete Institute that I'm involved with, Transportation Research Board, organizations like that. So in the sociology landscape, well, social science landscape, the conferences tend to be a little bit different in scale and thus uh, generality. So if you're talking about the European Sociological Association, that's going to be everyone who calls themselves a sociologist. And since sociology is the, um, is sort of a 1800s word that means social science, that's very broad. But then there is also like the area study. So for example, social movements studies, for example, where you'll just have deep dive into all the people who are studying that from different perspectives and different places and, and things like that. So I think that the question about what the point of a conference is, the reason that I ask that is just because it feels to me like, especially as a PhD student, where you are not a draw when you're presenting at a conference. Um, you know, maybe you you are showing your work off to interested people who are in your field, like, that's fine, but but sometimes you can get stuck into these small groups. Where you have like four or five people who, three of whom are also presenting. Then I think that the point is actually about networking and about the work that gets done sort of in the social interactions. And I actually think that that is a in kind of an underrated aspect of conferences. You know, when we talk about conference presentations, of course, it's important, but it's just to remember like, okay, what's the point of presenting your work? You want people to see it. But yeah, I also think there's a lot of papers that walk out of there or groups or like teams that walk out of there to write papers later or just making connections with people who you should be aware of. But that raises the next question. What do you think of digital conferencing? I think it really depends on how the digital conference is organized. I've I've been in various Zoom conferences, as many of us have during the pandemic, and they have gone from the ones where the presentations are pre-recorded and you just have this four days in which you can go and watch the presentations where there's virtually no interaction and it's just 
recordings to the ones where it's really with interaction with people who are trained to get attendees to actually interact and to have activities in smaller breakout rooms, etc. And I know everybody is allergic to breakout rooms by now, but that does create, you, you know, you, you get to meet somebody in a small group in a breakout room. So depending on how it's organized, you have different outcomes. If it's just uh, the pre-recordings, it's essentially, for me, it's not much of a difference between watching the recording and reading the paper. And since I'm somebody who likes reading things rather than seeing or listening to them, I, I probably would just rather read the paper than sit through the presentation that is pre-recorded. Whereas it's the ones that have these activities, join activities and the breakout rooms and stuff that really work that can help to get to meet people. I mean, it's not the same as in person, no. but at the same time, there's also a, a large number of people who can't travel for family reasons or budget reasons, etc. And I guess that if it's a Zoom conference or digital conference with really focused activities that can involve, say, scholars from the global south, whom I otherwise would never meet at any of the regular conferences because the ticket prices, etc. That does open up a new field for networking, which, as you already mentioned, is a big thing for conferences. That's a really good point. And when it comes to funding, I wonder how that actually works. Like, so in your case, do you draw funding from research money? Is that part of the the? It depends on. So part of my travel is funded by. My work in the Netherlands, part of the of it is, is funded by my work here in Ecuador. Um, in the Netherlands, it whenever we have a research project, we also reserve some budget for travel in there. And that's the part that then goes to booking the conference. Whereas here in Ecuador, it depends. Sometimes it's also on projects, but the funding that we get for projects is much smaller. Like we talk about projects of $5,000, $10,000 as compared to the budgets that we manage in the Netherlands for the research, which is a multitude of that. And then, of course, it's with $5,000, it's maybe one conference and, and, and things that you need to buy for the lab, ingredients for the concrete, and that's, that's as far as we can go. Right. For me, it has largely been through research groups. The research group will have a, a pot, and then you say, this is where I'm going, and you ask them and, and see, you know, if you haven't asked for too much, you pretty much get it. Um, I haven't had to do, there's also like in Sweden, there's a, there's quite a few stipends available for PhD students and some early career researchers. But as soon as you start getting established, that money disappears. So if you have someone whose career is not skyrocketing, they start to lose access to these things. And then then there's quite a bit of anxiety around that, actually. And especially that's that's important since if the real work of conferences is networking, then being there and having people see your stuff and meeting people that you can collaborate with later is actually a really big deal. So it's the kind of thing that I think it's probably good to have research groups, for example, who just have a pot. All right, so we've, we've gone through why and whether, whether it's worth partaking in the digital conferences, but then... When it gets to the actual conference and the presenting, I think that this actually makes a pretty big difference in terms of like whether people are willing to approach you and whether they 
how they engage with your material as to what you've done. And I have witnessed a plethora of different ways that people present. And, and one of the things that I noticed is that there's this genre of the, the people who read, <laughs> who read from their script, or even better is the ones who put their script on the slides. And it will be, you know, dense, tight text, and you'll have all the citations and everything. And, and it looks like a paper. And for those of us who read, that's unnecessary. I've read your paper. So uh, I was wondering if you had any other kind of like faux pas <laughs> or or uh, things like that that you've witnessed at conferences. Yeah, I've uh, as well witnessed the person reading the paper and not even having, as you mentioned, having the script or the text on the slides, but actually have going to the lectern with the printed paper, no slides, and read it from top to bottom. <laughs> And then just run into the time limit and uh, in the methods section and, and being siphoned off. Um, the other stereotype that I've seen at conferences is, and it, it's often uh, a full professor who is very important or feels very important and acts very important. And when there's something on the slide, like a figure not showing up or having moved, he will, and it's most often a he, he will flap with his hands and say, oh, my PhD student put that figure bad. And so <laughs> putting the blame on the PhD student, presenting the work of the PhD student and not letting the PhD student travel and get to meet people and present the work. So that's kind of a thing that always uh, irks me a bit to see this person and thinking like, why don't you just let your student travel? I mean, you know all these people here. Uh, just give the opportunity to your student and don't blame the poor student who is now working at home or who is now at home at the university. Keep on working while you get, you know, to travel and, and have the beers and network. Yeah, that one, I haven't, I haven't seen that one before, but I can imagine, <laughs> I can imagine precisely what that looks like. Uh, and the reason I think that I think about those, the genre is because you are trying to accomplish something different. And I'm curious as to sort of how you think about this. Like what are the best, what's the best way that you can think of or the best tips that you can think of for presenting uh, at, at a conference uh, and navigating the genre of conference presentations? I think you already lead me into that by saying it is, you want to accomplish something different with a conference presentation as compared to the paper. With a conference presentation, what I usually try to accomplish is to have one short message, take-home message, that my audience will remember. If they forget everything that I've shown on graphs and whatnot, that they will have one take-home message, one sentence that they say, oh, from Ava, I learned blah, blah, blah whatever it is that I have been presenting on. So I think having that clear for yourself Instead of trying to present the paper and all the aspects of the paper, especially if you have eight minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes uh, in a conference, you won't have the time to go through the details. And if people are interested in the topic, they will read the paper for the details and they will understand the research by reading the paper, in depth at least. Um, so what I usually focus on is having that one take-home message think like, this is what I want people to remember from my presentation, just as I do with teaching, right? I, I hope they remember one thing from class. Uh, so I think of what do I want them to remember and structure the presentation around that. I've heard this put a little bit like tell a story, 
Although I think that sometimes it's a little bit hard when you're thinking about scientific research, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're literally telling a story, but make sure that people understand that they have something to hook on to, right? I think this is, this is what you're... Yes, yes. And I think that also kind of leads into another point is that if you want to tell a story or if you want to have one take-home message, it's, it's tempting often to put too much in a presentation and to try to, to have less slides, less information, but explain it really well and what I see a lot in my field is, of course, our work is data heavy. So people will have a lot of figures and a lot of graphs. And maybe you have subplots. You have six subplots on one side. And often what, you see, what I see in presentations is that people make one grand gesture and say, and here are the results. And they move to the next slide. And as a listener, you don't have time to digest those results. So one of the things that I learned in a course long time ago and that I still practice is to just have one plot for starters and explain the whole plot. So say on the Y graph, we have this. On the X graph, we have that. Each data point represents this and is obtained, as I explained previously in the methods. And what this means is this and what you see is this and really explain what what is actually on the slide. So I'm curious, how how deep do you go into like a methods description in a in a conference presentation? If the narrative of your story is, here's our problem, I did some research, here's the solution, right? How much of the I did some research story do you tell? Yeah, that's that's of course very field specific. And in my field, it's either we make databases from experiments that have been published, or we do our own experiments and it's essentially we make pieces of concrete that represent a piece of a bridge or a piece of a building and then we break them in a controlled way, or we do that in the computer. So essentially our methods are a bit more limited than in other fields. And I think that's why people typically understand if you say I did experiments, what we show in a presentation would be photos because of course we like to see mm -hmm. the specimens and how our lab looks like mm -hmm. and we say which variables we tested and that's about what we describe we are not going through the discussion on why did i do experiments in the first place typically that will be well somebody thought it would be good to make these pieces and yeah. funded me for that <laughs> whereas in my case for example when i was presenting my dissertation the specific questions of my dissertation are derived from the intersection of about four different literatures. And they're not literatures that always are speaking to each other, despite the fact that they are in the kind of same place. But you have digital activism as kind of media and communication people. And you have the traditional social movements literature. And then that's an American tradition and da -da -da -da, all these different things, right? Mm -hmm. And then, by the way, I was studying a case that not everyone has heard of particularly middle-aged academic are not super connected to internet happenings. So what ends up happening then is that I spend a lot of time explaining what I'm doing and why. And it's very frustrating. <laughs> okay. uh, and, and there's a, but I do think that sometimes it's necessary in many social sciences. So much of what's holding people together is, is sort of theory or topic right? And so then you have to relate to sort of one or the other. And it's easier, I think, with topic. If you have a whole bunch of people who are in Latin American studies, then there's like a base knowledge that's, that's always expected. But at the top, that sort of top, if we're all talking about theory, then I have to explain aspects of my case to explain to you why I looked there. 
and so I think that, that can become a little bit a little bit difficult so because you have to do that explanatory part more but uh, for me then I feel like they, we tend to hand wave methods a little bit in presentations and I find that to be the most useful because you just sort of skip it and you just sort of say I did methods there's a method section over here you can read the method section but it's not relevant to this story right now the story is this is what I found and we could talk about the details if you want to talk to me so does that make it sound like we're saying that a conference presentation is almost a sales pitch for your research. Yeah, in a sense it is. Because as well, if you want to, you know, if your goal of the conference is to get collaborations, well, you want to, as bad as it kind of, as as, as sleazy and uh, 1980s as it sounds, you're trying to sell your research and yourself even kind of like, hey, look, I'm a nice person to collaborate with. So, mm-hmm. And that's why you own a power suit. I understood it really depends on the field as well. There is a kind of a formal aspect to this, but that also really does depend where you are and uh, and who you're talking to, because the, the social movements people would get weirded out if you showed up in a suit, um, right? There are a bunch of old hippies and commies, and there it's t-shirts and jeans, right? But if you go to, to these prof- these bigger professional conferences, then you do see the people in their suits in there, uh, and that's a much more professionalized vision of the of the field <laughs> and i've heard that for people in business schools it's very much on the other end the the business suits and etc for them as even standard for going to work how do you use visual aspects do you just show pictures do you do you like your powerpoint animations what are the things that you kind of do visually in a presentation to make it worth watching ideally i have videos so i for some of the bridge tests that we've done, we have like these uh, one video that I like showing and that maybe people are tired of seeing by now because I've repeated it a number of times, is we actually have a time lapse of an entire day on the side of how we test the bridge from building up how we put everything on the bridge and under the bridge and then mm. doing the test. And at the end, everybody's happy and applauding because the test went well. And that kind of really helps people to see all these things that I talk about. The, how the load is applied, how the sensors are applied. They really see that and they see as well. Uh, it starts in the dark because the test was done in November in the Netherlands when uh, more than half of the day it's dark. And uh, Well, <laughs> I'm talking to the wrong person here because you live in Sweden, so it's, it's, uh, it's even darker. It's even worse. But it starts in the dark in the early morning, then you have a bit of light during the day with the test, and then you see at the end of the day when the test is finished, it's dark again. So it kind of gives people a feeling for the sense of time that it takes to, to test one of these things as well. So I try to have videos, if possible, of also be- when I do experiments, my, my, my things fail with a bang. So people like seeing things do bang and that, that always uh, ca- catches the attention of people. And do you rely on things like making a joke, uh, doing these sort of simple things to kind of get your, your, the crowd with you? Or, or are those rhetorical tools that you kind of learn in a rhetoric class? Are those outside the wheelhouse of, of the serious academics? Yeah, so jokes, of course, that depends on the culture as well, right? Which joke works yeah. and not. I have a few things that are slightly funny that I think are funny, such as the, the story that in the 19th century, the, they, they also tested bridges before opening them to show to the traveling public that the bridge is safe. And at that time, they used to put the engineer under the bridge during the test. And that's something that people tend to find funny but it's true as well and that's the kind of like i try to have these little stories that that 
I guess, uh, or maybe a little bit funny, but really jokes. Um, maybe I'm just not a funny person, um, but it also really depends on the culture on what works and what not. And, and maybe my very nerdy sense of humor is, I also already know that people sometimes just stare at me. And if there is like 50 people in a room and they will all stare at me like, oh my God, what, what, what does she think? Then maybe better not try it. The one thing that I would say is that as a writer and editor, I always tell people only use humor that makes you laugh multiple times when you've written it, right? If you write something and then you come back to it and it makes you laugh again, okay, then you can start thinking about using it. But then if someone else sees it and they don't laugh, then you know, take it out, right? Like test, test that material. But I think for me personally, I've been able to do a little bit of a bad boy thing with my, cause I go in and I've got a very visual approach to what I to what I do, I, studying anonymous and, and internet activism, there is so much visual content. There are so many videos people are using. There's a really specific genre with the, the Guy Fox mask and the, and the kind of computer voice. So that's very easy. It's, it's shooting fish in a barrel, as we, as we violently say in the United States. And I, I think that that's like, so for me, that's always been part of it. And then I, I like to have rehearsed my presentations as well, because I still get nervous when I present. Um, even after hours and hours and hours in front of classrooms and, and these sorts of things, I still, I still get nervous. And so I like to be very pre prepared, but I like there to be a choreography to my presentation, not in, not, not in literal dance moves kind of way, but there's a, a rhythm to what I'm doing in terms of the animations and what I'm saying and how things are working and when the visual media comes in. And I, I find that that, you know, that works very well for me, but I, I've always wondered, is that a genre specific thing? Is that, does that have to do with the fact that I am writing about something that's very visually ap appealing, that's very engaging in these sorts of things that has lots of very forgiving material that I can use. And then I, I do wonder sometimes, do, pe do people take it seriously? Because there is this question of whether something so entertaining can be serious. And so, so this is actually a little bit back to the guy who reads his paper. I sometimes have wondered whether that isn't about seriousness. It is often philosophical papers in, in sociology, for example. So they go up there and they don't want to do a presentation because presentations are unserious. They want to do like a visual presentation because a visual presentation is not serious. And I wonder sometimes about that. I mean, it's just a... A theory. So, so I mean, that has worked very well for me. But then here's the question. Do you put references? Do you actually put like citation in your presentation? If it's really a piece of data that I use from somebody else, I will put it like a figure or um, a, a graph. I will put like the summarized reference under it so that people see it's not my own work. Um, but the full reference would be in a paper. But I don't put like the whole list of references at the end of the presentation. Yeah. And that's one of those things that's a genre thing. It's like no one's checking your references yeah, here. Yeah, no, I just want to, if I, if I put it under, like in smaller font under a figure, it would be to give credit that it's, I took it from somebody else. So what is the take home message for this episode? Then that's a good question. Um, I think we have a take home message related to thinking about what you want to get out of your conference and preparing accordingly. Is mm -hmm. that aligned with what you... I think that if I were to, if I were to say what the take-home message from this is, is have a take-home message. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe through artistic repetition, we have just really nailed that down. Mm -hmm. 
So with that, I would like to thank all our listeners who are listening to today's episodes. This was episode 114, in which we talked about presenting at conferences and how we think about presenting at conferences. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we'll be back next week with more on PhD Life and Research Mechanics.